Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Are you sure? It's a holiday weekend, and I'm like, do those even count anymore? Do those matter? Uh, but surely they do at some level. Um, <clears throat> but uh, as it being a holiday weekend, uh, we've been in this sermon series on parables, and I thought this would be uh, another good week to um, kind of look at the second transition uh, in what, the way we've looked at Jesus' parables this go-around. Uh, we started with the kingdom, the kingdom parables that Jesus would tell. He would he started off all three gospel accounts that have parables, Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, start with the parable of the sower. The kingdom of God is like a seed that's sown. It's scattered everywhere, uh, but it's, it's sown. And what Jesus is telling us there, what he's hinting at is not necessarily, when we go back and look at the context, it's not necessarily of who's in and who's out, but this is how the kingdom of God grows. It's how it works in us. It's how, how it uh, bears fruit. It's like a seed. And our job in that process, again, is not that we would bear the judge of what seed is good and what seed is bad. Even, uh, even the farmer tells his servants, it's not your job to weed out the weeds. I will get that. Your job is to be fertile soil. Uh, and so our job is to follow Jesus, to stop and examine, allow for our hearts and our souls to grow, uh, to, to be good soil, to become fertile for the kingdom of God to take root. Uh, And then we hit this feeding of the 5,000, and we notice that there's a little bit of a switch. It's not that Jesus changes the message of the kingdom of God. It's not that all of a sudden he he switches things up and starts teaching something different, but he he kind of comes at it with a different strategy, or so it would appear. Uh, At the the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus feeds everybody, and then he he sees that they want to make him king. And so uh, Jesus resists that, and he says, that's not the point. Anytime we want to bring Jesus into our earthly kingdoms, uh, when we want Jesus to meet our, uh, our kingdom wants and desires, he is going to gloriously disappoint us. And so following that feeding of the 5,000, there's a little bit of a, of a switch in how Jesus um, presents that. Uh, he, he goes from kingdom language uh, more to these, uh, this outrageous grace where we see comparisons of two people standing next to each other, the one we assume is good and upright and moral, and the one we look at and we're like, they're evil and they're wicked. The tax collector and, uh, the, the, tax collector and the Pharisee that, that Joel preached about. Uh, the good brother, the older son who was faithful, and then the younger son who was rebellious, who basically told his father, you're dead to me. And what we see here uh, is these, these outrageous pictures of grace of who walks away justified. That just being good and practicing religion, in fact, does not necessarily save you. In fact, it can make you an enemy of God because it can lead you to believe that you don't need Jesus. Jesus is for those people. Um, Sometimes our sin and our rebellion can keep us from receiving and trusting the outrageous grace of Jesus. But sometimes our religion and our good works can keep us from receiving and trusting the outrageous grace of Jesus. And so in this final 
push as Jesus heads to this, his, the, the, the fulfillment of his ministry heading into Jerusalem, um, we're going to see parables as he gets in Jerusalem that really kind of, we, we talked before about how sometimes the parables are mysterious and we don't, we're kind of left with who's he talking about, who's he referring to here. Um, there's still going to be a measure of mystery in some of these parables, uh, but as far as who he's talking about, he kind of rips the band-aid off there. He kind of gets pretty direct uh, and the people that he's talking to is he meets with Pharisees and he's walking in the temple and he meets with the scribes. They're, they're pretty certain that Jesus is talking directly to them. Um, and so this is what we will call the parables of judgment. Um, but even in saying that, we need to be aware. Judgment of what? Judgment of whom? What is the judgment of God? Uh, we're, we, we have to be careful because our tendency, our temptation in, in our self-justification is to say, ah, the judgment of God is when he's going to come and he is finally going to take out those people. Right? Uh, finally, God's going to come and he's going to wipe out all. And this is exactly what, what people thought in that day. And so we need to be, we need to be cautious. Um, And we'll get to that. Because it might be who's facing God's judgment, but it also might be what is facing God's judgment. What has God come to judge? So we'll get back to that. So we're going to go through this transition this morning. And to do this, we're going to look at kind of a strange event um, that really begins to narrow and focus Jesus' ministry toward Jerusalem. Uh, This is not a parable that we're going to look at this week, uh, but it does contain a commission to us. Uh, It happens to Jesus right before he begins his actually descent from a mountain and then ascent back into Jerusalem. Uh, and it is uh, the transfiguration. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. And uh, we'll read this together. I think we have it on the screen behind us. Yeah. Uh, this is the transfiguration, which is kind of a, an interesting event. I'll pause for some effects. You can see how... It's an interesting event, all right? Chapter 17, after six days, uh, Jesus had been in the north. He'd been in Caesarea Philippi uh, ministering, and um, this is where he heals the Syrophoenician woman, which is the second person he marvels at her faith. Uh, In Matthew, it talks about how he just fed 4,000. So this is not the feeding of 5,000. It's feeding the 4,000, two separate events that Jesus does this. Uh, He's been in the north, um, and so he's there, and and, and everybody, the crowds are still following him. The Pharisees are still following him, uh, and... He's there, and then after six days, so that's context, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Uh, This is probably Mount Hermon, from what we know of the context of where he's at, which I think is like 10,000 feet. It's a very, it's not like a hill. This is huge. Uh, And he was transfigured before them. (laughs) That seems understated. Uh... His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter, and Peter talked. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. Uh, if you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And this is the, my favorite part. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Um, all right, so real quick, just to kind of talk through what is, is taking place here. Because how many of you have heard of the transfiguration of this event, right? How many of you ever actually sat and thought about this and like what exactly is taking place here? It's kind of, a, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. We know it's important, like we get by the fact that Jesus is glowing. This is probably important. And yet, we're not given a whole lot of why. What is going on here? So let's, let's look just a little bit. Um, they had been there for six days. They waited. They got up to the top of this mountain, which again is probably, probably Mount Hermon. That's it, a significant climb. Uh, and, and then it says that Jesus was transfigured before them, as if, as if we have that, uh, ca that um, category in our mind. Oh, transfigured. What does that mean? Jesus was transfigured before him, um, before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became a white light. And Moses and Elijah appear with him. Moses and Elijah all throughout the Old Testament represent the law and the prophets. Moses the law uh, and Elijah all of the prophets. It's the culmination of all of, really all of biblical time and history, all of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And as they're standing there and Jesus is, is glowing, uh, his face shining like the sun and his clothes, another gospel account says they were like, like bleach could never do. They had turned it that bright of white. And Peter opens his mouth. God bless that guy, man. Nobody, feels, nobody makes me feel uh, less alone than Peter. Um, because Peter, anytime there's a thing not to be said or the wrong thing to be said, Peter's right there on the spot to nail it. Now, Peter shouldn't have talked, but what he says is actually, is actually not that bad. This is good. It's good that we're here. He picks up on that. Um, but then he says, if you'd like, I could build three tents. Um, tent, the, the other word there is, it would, would be tabernacle. Um, and tabernacle was a, was a dwelling place. It was a place to, to be, and it was, especially for uh, any kind of deity in that day, a, a tabernacle would be a covering. It would be a temporary place of dwelling. And so Peter's recognizing, I think, that there is a sense of divine here. And you're like, well, yeah. Um, but for Peter, this is an important step, right? Because if you remember... Peter had just had this encounter with Jesus where he's like, Jesus, even if I, will, if even I have to die for you, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter is, is at least moving in the right direction here. Um, 
he is recognizing that this is a divine encounter uh, that Jesus, and, and maybe the disciples are starting to see that Jesus is, is they're starting maybe to put together that, that Jesus is more than, than they had thought, more than they could possibly know. Um, and it, it kind of, in some ways, kind of harkens back to uh, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is in the temple and he's standing before God and the glory of the Lord fills the temple of God. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I am undone. Peter is seeing Jesus um, shining brightly and, and instead of saying, I'm undone, he's like, I could build tents. Um, and, and this moment, as, as understated as it seems to be, this is potentially maybe even the climax of the ministry of Jesus. Um, we are given privy to who Jesus is. It's like the curtains are pulled back a little bit and we go, Oh, okay, okay. Now, we, as we're looking back 2,000 years with 2,000 years of theology, good and bad, built on top of this, we're like, well, duh, Jesus is God. How can they not get that? But keep in mind, they are not, they didn't know what we know. They didn't have 2,000 years. They're following this linear, and uh, this kind of unveils a, a whole new level of who Jesus is. Lest we had doubted. This is divine. The inner being of Jesus is, is being made known externally. And Jesus is still fully man, but the Godhood of Jesus is kind of uh, showing forth here. And again, as Peter is still talking, God does not wait for Peter to finish. The glory of God shows up. Again, kind of going back to Isaiah 6, um, the glory of God is not necessarily the fame of God in this moment. It is the tangible presence of God that, that um, how, how do you put this? When, when somebody walks in a room and you're like, oh my goodness, that's so-and-so, and everything kind of stops in its track, Right? When, when a king or when somebody walks in, the tangible presence of God moves in in a cloud. A cloud is very familiar uh, to the people of Israel. Um, and from this cloud, the voice of God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, the interaction here between God the Father and God the Son is not our focus for today, but as Jesus is entering into his final days of ministry... Um, in, in all of his, yes, Jesus is divine, but also Jesus is fully human. Does he know exactly what's going to take place uh, in, the, in the coming weeks? Probably not. Uh, but he knows that he is going to lay down his life in his humanity. And what he hears from God the Father is, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What a moment to hear that from the Father. What a testimony to the power of God's presence and, and, um, and him being pleased to speak identity. And I will tell you, so many sons, earthly sons, long to hear that, long to hear that from their father. I will tell you, if you're a father, um, I don't know that you could ever say that enough to your children. Um, 
You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, we could go down that route. We're not going to. The point of what we're going to look at today is what comes next. They're heading down the mountain, and Jesus tells his disciples, uh, don't talk about what just happened until after the Son of Man, that's Messianic language from Daniel, until after the Son of Man uh, has been raised from the dead. Now, if you're listening to this, you may think there's probably some other logical questions that we would ask, like, what? I mean, take your pick, right? Son of man. Who? Okay, wait a minute. Who's the son of man? Being raised after death, that's confusing, at least. Who's, you're, okay, you're going to die, right? You've told us that before. But that's not, that's not the question they ask. They ask uh, a different question. And, and it's a question that actually gives us a hint that they may have understood more uh, of what was going on. Um, their question is, doesn't it say that Elijah has to come first? Now, you may be going, that's not the question I would ask in this moment. Uh, they recognize Messianic language. Jesus answers them and says, yes, uh, this, Elijah does come first. And I will tell you that he's already come. And they did away with him, and so the Son of Man must come, and they will treat him the same way. He will also suffer at their hands. And then they realized he was talking about John the Baptist. All right, now, let's, let's kind of get caught up on, on what just happened there. This is actually a very logical question uh, for, um, for a, a, a Jew in that day to ask. A major theme throughout the Old Testament uh, is that day, uh, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day to come. Um, and uh, it's a very... It's a very uh, uh, primary um, theme throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it's the day of fulfillment. It's the day of uh, that all things will be fulfilled. It's the anticipation of the coming Messiah. All of the promises uh, that God gives. When you look at the end of every every uh, major and minor prophet, there is a day of judgment when the wicked and the righteous will be separated, and God will restore uh, all things to Israel. Uh, and the very last verse, actually, of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In fact, uh, many Jewish satyrs to this day, uh, when they celebrate the Seder, which is the Passover feast, they will leave an empty chair at the table uh, for Elijah in the anticipation and hope that he will come. In some Orthodox circles, uh, the men will actually go to the door and open the door and wait to see, is this the year that Elijah will come? And they're, again, they're anticipating the new Jerusalem, the return of the day of the Lord, the hope of the Messianic king to come. And what is this glorious day going to bring? It's going to bring turning the hearts of children to their fathers and the hearts of fathers to their children. It's, it's going to bring reconciliation. And so what Jesus is saying here is, you're right, Elijah must come, 
And I'm going to tell you that Elijah has already come. He has already come calling out as a voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And the scribes did not recognize him. And then what the disciples realized is they knew who he was referring to. He's talking about John the Baptist. And then having that knowledge present, what Jesus is telling his disciples here is that, again, he is the one who will be ushering in the day of judgment. He is the one that will be ushering in the day of the Lord. He is the one bringing about that day. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. He is ushering in the judgment. Now, there's a lot we could talk about with this. Um, We could talk about eschatology. We could talk about the end times. We could talk about what this means and how long. And is this the full day of judgment? Is this the, what what all is taking place here? Um, And uh, we're not going to. Um, Jesus is ushering in the judgment of God, but what is glorious and what is crazy at the same time is that God reconciling all of these things, uh, Jesus himself is going to take on the judgment of God. Jesus himself, what is, what is, Jesus is going to bear the weight of the sins of the world, of the sins of Israel. He is going to take the judgment for us uh, in our failing in the covenant between God and man, between God and Israel. The judgment for us will not be how well we've performed, how much we've got it right. The judgment for us will be have we thrown ourselves at the mercy of Jesus or have we determined to pay our own debt, either through rebellion or religion? And so as we get to these final parables, Jesus doesn't suddenly abandon all that he has said about the kingdom of God. He doesn't abandon outrageous grace. He doesn't, uh, and, and he doesn't all of a sudden start talking about the wrath of God that's going to be poured out. What he will say in these parables in this final week are actually very consistent with the parables that he's already told, they're just a bit more poignant. Every week in the midst of these parables that are going to point out uh, how badly the presence of God has been missed, we are also going to see the grace and mercy of Jesus completely unveiled, compelling and inviting us to dive in, to be gathered under his wings like a mother hen gathers her brood, And even here, it's not going to be Jesus against these people. It will be Jesus for the sake of the world. He has come to judge sin and death. But the judge himself is paying his own debt. And maybe we've heard this too much. Maybe this has become old hat. Maybe we hear it and we go, yeah, amen. What makes that scary is that's exactly what happened. Even still, people will walk away. There's there's a a powerful juxtaposition between the, the... transfiguration of Jesus on Mount Hermon and the, and the uh, 
and Jesus on the cross uh, on Golgotha. The intense bright light of the transfiguration giving way to the darkness of the cross. The communion with his disciples uh, and Moses and Elijah that will eventually, his disciples who will all eventually abandon him. Hearing from the Father, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, that eventually leads to crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as the glory of the Lord, the very presence of God, Jesus himself makes his way through Jerusalem, the holy heavenly city, as he makes his way, the very presence of God walking through the streets, meeting with scribes, being in the temple. The stories that he tells, a king throws a wedding feast and all the ones that are supposed to be invited are invited. The king, you get a chance to go to the wedding feast of the king. And what do all the normal people say? This would be the most incredible invite you would ever get. And they're too busy. Things have come up. We've got other stuff going on. We see a story of a man who has a phenomenal vineyard and he leases out the vineyard, but the tenants pridefully presume that this is theirs. And when the owner of the vineyard sends servants back to make sure that it's bearing fruit and to drink from the wine that they're supposed to be working on, they, th they say, no, this is ours. And they beat or kill every servant that comes to try to just see how the land is doing. The seeds of the kingdom of God are there and they're being snatched away by pride, by selfishness, by preoccupation with other things. They are missing God himself and yet... The judgment of the Lord, what is it? For those who have hung, are hungry, the bread of life has come. For those who are thirsty, the living water is being poured out. For those who mourn, the comforting presence of God is closer than ever. For those who have sinned against God, the Redeemer has come that we might be reconciled. All right. That's, there's a lot of technical stuff in there. Let's get to application. As we, as we enter into these parables of judgment of Holy Week, uh, how do we enter into these hopefully, especially in this time, especially in a time where uh, our world seems to be falling apart, which has been a weekly theme? Um, how do we drink deeply from the wellspring of life instead of missing Jesus? Let me go back real quick to the transfiguration. There's an interesting, rather straightforward conclusion in that first half there that the presence of God the Father brings that I think we can all learn from. In Matthew 17, verse 5 and 6, God in the cloud says this, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's a good word. Amen? That's a good word? Seems pretty straightforward. It seems, I think it seems like pretty good advice. Um, just like then, we are in a day and age where listening to Jesus is crowded out by a million different things. The noise and the information and the distraction and the things that we are taking in these days is, is simply outrageous. 
One of these days I'll expand on it and get the facts a little bit more uh, in place. But um, researchers estimate at the time of Jesus, uh, all of the information available on the earth at the time of Jesus would take, I think it was something like 1,200 years to double. Does that make sense? It'll make sense as I move forward a little bit. Gradually, as there were more people, as there were more information, as there's more technology, it got down to about, uh, for, for a while, it would get down to the amount of information on the earth would double every century or so. By World War II, that started speeding up at a fairly rapid pace. Today, anybody want to guess how long it takes for the amount of information on the world to double? 12 hours. 12 hours. So, this is good because I totally forgot to mention this. Um, uh, Delyn Wilson, born uh, Paul and Amanda, had their little girl. Um, so, that's good that I, that I got to that point because I had forgot to say that Paul and Amanda had their little girl. Uh, you can clap. Yeah, that's another mouth to the litter. Um, and we are excited for them. Also, the Andriches became grandparents, and the Colemans twice became grandparents in nine days. Not became, continued their run, uh, adding two more. All right? If Delyn was born this morning, she wasn't. She was born, Darden, where are you at? Friday. All right, Friday evening, right? Yes. She was born Friday. If Delyn would have been born this morning... By the time she would go to bed tonight, the amount of information in the world will be doubled. We are not meant to live in that. If you're wondering why we are filled with anxiety and fear, if you wonder why you feel constantly behind and never feel like you can catch up, This is, this is it. If, if we've ever needed a time to slow down and to dwell in the presence of God, man, it's now. And listen, I'm not preaching this at you guys. I am preaching this at me because I need to hear this and I need to practice this. And I am trying and failing and then trying again. Um, you'll be happy to know. And I didn't tell the elders this yet, so this is the grand unveiling. Uh, Facebook and Twitter are both blocked on my phone. I'm working on my iPad, one step at a time, one step at a time. Um, uh, and I'm trying to radically reduce that. I got notified this morning that my time was down 7% last week. And, and who needs that right now, right? I'm like, I don't need your judgment too. Um, not the point. It's down, trending in the right direction. Uh, It's too much. It's literally killing us. We need the presence of Jesus. Why? Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. When they heard the voice of God coming from a cloud, they were terrified. Probably a good response. Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise, have no fear. The most often repeated message in the entirety of Scripture, fear not, have no fear. 
Every time Jesus shows up on the scene, every time an angel of the Lord or God himself appears in a dream, the first words are very often, fear not, for I am with you. Fear of the Lord is not arrogance, it's not indifference, it's not avoidance, it's not willful ignorance. Jesus fully participated in the heartache and the injustices of sinful man, and yet Jesus himself, God incarnate, got away often to be with Jesus, to to be with Jesus. He was Jesus, to be with the Father. He got away often to dwell with the Father. And the invitation that he gives us is for us to sit and listen and dwell with him. So this week, this week you have a day off. Um, I think, most people, you should. Here's, what I, here's the, the only challenge for this week. Take one step toward listening to Jesus more. Don't go, okay, from here on, off, from here on out, I'm going to spend eight hours a day just meditating and sitting and meditating. You, you won't, okay? Unless right now you're doing seven and a half hours already. Uh, and we're not in the desert to stay away from the city. We are in the desert for the sake of the city. Take one step toward listening to Jesus more. Maybe it's turning off information. Maybe it's starting a new habit. Maybe it's taking time every morning to stop and pause. Uh, Maybe it's simply, there's a a prayer called the welcoming prayer. Welcoming prayer just notices your body, your mind, and and when there's moments that you're triggered, when there's moments that you're moved toward anxiety, when there's something that you feel the press and uh, stressor of the day, or when there's a moment when you're tempted to escape, when there's a moment that you feel overjoyed, like I can take on the world. Maybe it's every time you're going to switch to check the latest on social media, or to check your email, or to check the stock numbers, to just stop and go, welcome Jesus, welcome. The good times and the bad, to invite Jesus and the presence of Jesus into that moment and to hear from him, fear not, I am with you. We have, just like the people that Jesus is is preaching to, we're going to take the next week and we're going to, We're going to work on this more over the next coming weeks as Jesus talks about this because being religious and doing these practices, being considered on the good side of things, being a good moral person, you're going to see a whole lot of that missing the presence of Jesus. So this week, let's take one step to slow down, to be intentional, to sit in the presence of God and to hear from Jesus, fear not, for I am with you. Let's pray. God, here again, thank you that this, um, your kingdom is not up for grabs. Your kingdom is not uh, at all uh, in peril or in danger. Um, However, our mindfulness of it, our awareness of it, our um, enjoyment of it is It's threatened daily. Your grace and mercy are there to be 
to, to be taken in deeply. So may you turn our hearts to you. as you, through the work of your Son and the continued work of the Holy Spirit, have turned your heart toward us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every week when we gather together, we take this meal together called communion. Uh, and this Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.